Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I am joined by Nicole Kilburn, who is an anthropologist at Camosun College in Victoria, BC, just a few kilometres from the Abe Books office. Nicole is the author of a book called The Future Has an Ancient Heart, Southern Italian Food Traditions in a Modern World. So today, we are talking about three subjects close to my heart, Italy, food, and history. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So, when did your fascination with Southern Italy and its food begin? I would have to say it started in 2014, uh, by accident, actually. I was looking for an opportunity to do some professional development in food anthropology and stumbled across the Mesor's Culinary Workshop um, in a web search. And the idea of being able to learn about food but not learn how to cook food, because I'm not a very good cook, um, really appealed to me. And I was lucky enough to go in 2014 on um, the Mesor's Culinary Workshop, and then I worked with Mesor's to co-facilitate that workshop in 2015 and 2016, and that's how I spent my time in Southern Italy doing research. So tell us a little bit about that workshop. Yeah, so rather than your traditional cooking workshop where you're learning how to cook different types of food, the idea was to learn about the foods by interacting with food producers. And so I love good food, uh, but I'm not a very confident cook. I'm very lucky that my husband does that and and enjoys doing that. And so the opportunity to go and and learn about Southern Italy through the lens of food with um, the contributor on my book, um, Tonio Crianza, who is a sixth generation olive farmer in uh, the Murgia Plateau was like a backstage pass to have an opportunity to learn about his landscape and his food and his family and his heritage um, from him. And we worked together really well and so being able to then go and help him run the workshop in 2015 and 2016 to do my own research on um, food traditions, but also looking at the role of food tourism as a form of sustainable rural economic development in an area that is struggling with high unemployment rates and struggling to, to make it in, in our modern reality uh, was a really, it was a fantastic um, professional and personal opportunity for me. So your book covers various staples such as pizza, olives, wine, cheese, lemons, almonds and bread uh, and some various other topics as well. But when you were researching these foods, what surprised you? I think what surprised me is that the same themes kept coming up. So you're right, they, they seem very different. But the stories that were coming to me from shepherds were the same sorts of things that lemon farmers were talking about. They were the same struggles uh, that olive producers, small olive producers in um, southern Italy were facing. And so I didn't plan on having overall themes about sustainability and the importance of how food is uh, this repository of stories but that just kept coming up again and again which as an anthropologist I find really fascinating 
that you know we do have all of these stories that are embedded in our in our foods uh, that we sometimes have forgotten. Um, it's particularly problematic in a modern global industrial food system where we tend to reduce food to calories and we forget that there's you know heritage and um, personal histories and um, how the landscape shapes food. Um, so finding how that was expressed in all of these different ingredients and different dishes um, was, um, was a really interesting exploration. So that single connecting theme, was that their struggles for survival in the modern age? I think that's certainly a key theme. I think it, there, another theme is how important they are to um, a sense of place and a sense of, of identity. So it's about heritage, but this connection to landscape, how landscape provides the, the fundamental ingredients for what you then can grow. So the Murja Plateau, where I've spent most of my time um, focusing my work in southern Italy, it's very dry. There's no surface water. So you have varieties of almonds and varieties of olives that have been bred over hundreds and hundreds and in some cases thousands of years to survive in these challenging environments. And so um, the foods of these places are reflections of the landscapes that they are grown on. And by extension, the people that grow these foods and make these dishes and describe having olive oil or lemon juice running through their veins, they are shaped by this landscape as well. And as somebody that has grown up in North America in a, a global food system where uh, as a, somebody that lives in an urban context I feel quite disconnected from my food, it was really quite something to see what that connection looks like to the land and to community. But it was also really interesting to see the struggles in the year, well 2016 was the last year that I was doing research there, as southern Italians recognize that they are they're not stuck in the past they are they are they are dealing with the same challenges that we all are and uh, and fighting to maintain that connection to to land through the food that they love so you explore those connections by going and spending time with farmers and, and traditional food producers um, when I was reading those sections do seem to be tinged with a little sadness um, how do you see the future for those people? I think it is sad. Um, there are significant challenges. One of the biggest ones is when you, when you value on price alone, most small food producers, and we could say that here in North America as well, most food producers can't compete with the economies of scale that come from large-scale producers. And... So if price is the, is the deciding point, small-time producers like uh, Giovanni, a shepherd that um, I worked with, had the pleasure of, of spending time with, and his stories are reflected in the book, there is absolutely no way that he can make really what we would consider a living wage, making a product that is the same type of product that his father and his grandfather made before him, his children have no interest in becoming shepherds because they've watched their dad work for the last 30 plus years without a holiday. 
Um, and uh, their modern challenges, the EU's hygiene rules, for example, are make it even more difficult for small-time producers to compete. Somebody like Giovanni doesn't have the money to upgrade his cheesemaking facility with stainless steel and washrooms that are a prescribed distance away from his cheesemaking facility. He makes cheese in a cave in the same space that his father made cheese and he can't afford the certification that would be required to sell his cheese in a store. And that is the story of many, many small food producers. Um, so their numbers are dwindling. However, there are people that are feeling the tug of, of their family history and connection to food. So. Uh, Salvatore, who's a lemon farmer that I met on the Amalfi Coast, had been a very successful economist in Naples and realized that he needed to go home. And he brought his family back to the farm and doesn't make nearly as much as he did when he was uh, an economist, but is valuing his his life in different ways and is intensely proud of what he is producing. Uh, and what I'm hearing is that we actually are seeing a small resurgence um, of youth that are returning to these food traditions, in part probably uh, bolstered by the slow food movement and um, by the interest um, from food tourism. And I see that as something that is um, very exciting as, as young people are reasserting uh, themselves as food producers in a modern context. So you dedicate a chapter to uh, Matera, a town that features Paleolithic, I hope I said that right, Paleolithic cave dwellings. Um, so that seems to be an example of uh, where you find ancient remains right next to people with Wi-Fi and cell phones. Why did you decide to write about that town in a food book? That's a good question. Um, I think that Matera represents the intersection of a lot of the themes of this book. So Matera is one of the oldest continuously occupied cities in the world and has been the location for you know, lots of food history or history in general uh, over its 9,000 plus years of occupation. Those caves have been the homes of shepherds and farmers growing the food that I was learning about from um, contemporary food producers. And Matera is a, has a really interesting set of chapters in a, in a long convoluted story um, that really speaks to sustainability, so the connection to the land, and what can happen when that connection is severed. So Matera was uh, a prosperous place by all accounts in the 1200s and, and earlier, and by the early 1900s, uh, and certainly by the Second World War, when Carlo Levi um, was there as a political prisoner during the Second World War, it was a place of um, of squalor, of I extreme poverty, of uh, cholera and um, other diseases, uh, rampant malnutrition. 
And uh, in the years after the war, Matera became this lightning rod for modernization and encouraging people to turn their backs on their heritage and look squarely into the future with every every promise uh, of a modern world uh, that included grocery stores and um, a disconnect from family and from heritage and from landscape and increasingly in Matera there's this recognition that that is um, there's a tremendous set of compromises that come with that set of choices and so today, um, Matera is actually the European culture capital for 2019, trying to celebrate some of the key themes that I bring up in my book. So sustainability, uh, reinvention, um, rejuvenation. And we can say that about food, uh, and Matera offers this opportunity to think about uh, a broader perspective. So food is part of landscape, Matera is also part of landscape okay so let's indeed talk food yeah what is your favorite dish from southern Italy that's a hard question there are so many incredible foods that I was introduced to when I um, first started working in southern Italy they were completely different from what I expected Um, as somebody born and raised in North America I expected stereotypical Italian food spaghetti pizza Um, I think I expected Italian-American cuisine. It's been really interesting to understand the history of Italian-American cuisine and also recognize that food in Italy is very regionally uh, variable. So the food in Matera, for example, is different from um, the food in Bari on the coast, which is about an hour's drive away. And... It's very seasonal as well. So a favorite dish for me would be something made for me by my friend Rosanna Denore, who gifted some recipes that are in the book. Um, She makes things effortlessly from the resources that she has available. Um, So cooked pasta with um, fresh eggplant and uh, maybe wild asparagus that we forged from the fields earlier in the day. is absolutely dynamite. So recipes would vary village to village, which could be a few kilometers apart. That's right, yeah. We um, one night brought home mussels from Bari. We'd been to the fish market and we were very excited. I'm a West Coaster, I enjoy seafood and we brought them home for Rosanna and she got a bit flustered because she didn't know how to cook mussels. And we had a conversation. I said, what do you mean? You know, you're an hour from the coast. And she said, Nicole, we're an hour from the coast. We don't, we don't cook that food. You know, we cook Altamira food. Yeah. And um, so the West Coasters from Canada actually cooked the mussels that evening. Um, Rosanna cooks the food that her family cooked. There's a real conservatism when it comes to food um, in southern Italy, which I found very interesting. Uh, It's one of the reasons why McDonald's didn't do very well in Altamira. People were curious, and before long they went back to their focaccia because they preferred it and were quite disinterested with anything that didn't fit with their Mm -hmm. conservative ideas about what food's supposed to be. I noticed you didn't write too much about meat. So is it right to say that a traditional southern Italian diet 
wouldn't include a lot of meat. That's right. Yeah, uh, meat cross-culturally actually is generally associated with affluence. And the general public in the South, uh, historically and in in a contemporary sense to a certain extent as well, um, have not been affluent. In many cases, we're talking about sharecroppers, peasants. Um, They ate what was locally available, what was seasonally available. Um, The meat that was consumed was also seasonal. And it's interesting in places like Naples, one of the poorest, it continues to be one of the poorest cities in Europe, uh, you're going to see a lot of tripe shops. And that is the meat of traditional Southern Italians. And it really speaks to the, the better cuts of meat going to the more affluent. And here in North America, it's interesting that today, offal is left on the butcher room floor. And I think that that really speaks to Um, the amount of waste that is associated with our modern um, food culture, but also our affluence. We eat more meat here in North America as a a per capita average than anywhere else in the world, and that's been steadily increasing as a reflection of our socioeconomics. So let's bust some myths. Pasta is the most Italian food imaginable, and yet the Arabs introduced pasta to Italy in the ninth century. How did pasta become a cornerstone of Italian cuisine? So it's hard, it's hard to get a clear sense. It was fun to research that because one of the, the myths is that it came back with Marco Polo from um, his journeys in, in um, China. It really seems to be um, Arabs that um, arrived and influenced Uh, the South and their cuisine in so many different ways. They introduced new ways of using lemons and um, brought a whole variety of of, um, foods. Um, Pasta is uh, something that can be made with a very few ingredients. And in the South, it's generally made with a durum wheat, uh, which is a hard wheat. And so the development of the screw press uh, in the South meant that pasta could be made on nearly industrial scales. Uh, to make things like pressed pastas, um, macaroni, for example. What's a screw press? It's, uh, it, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. So it, it's a round disc that has um, different shapes of, of holes, and the pasta dough is pressed through it, and it creates a variety of different shapes and types of pasta. And um, so you can make a lot of it, and it's generally then dried, which makes it storable. Uh, in the north, the um, softer wheat lends itself more to the handmade pastas. So the, the dried screw press pastas are more common in the south. Um, you have the, the vast majority of Italian immigrants coming to the Americas in the late 1800s and early 1900s. About 85% of them came from the south. Um, because of the extreme poverty in the South following the unification of, um, of Italy. And they brought their food traditions with them. And so Italian-American cuisine that is very pasta-heavy reflects that bias of um, Southern Italian immigrants. And pizza. Now, pizza is supposed to originate from Naples and is regarded as a peasant food. Again, can you explain the origins of pizza for us? Sure. So pizza actually is connected to a a family of Mediterranean flatbreads. So it's um, the word pizza is related to the Greek word pita. And by the early 1800s, there seems to be um, 
a flat bread that has uh, a variety of toppings sparingly applied. Um, so Italians uh, look unfavorably at North American interpretations of pizza. We put way too many toppings on our pizza. Uh, stuffed crust and everything else. Italians in the South definitely don't describe pizza like that. But by the early 1800s, um, there is this flat bread um, that had um, small fish and cheese, um, tomato sauce in some cases, uh, and it was really cheap. So it, it was bought on the street and it was generally folded lengthwise in half and it was eaten while you were walking on the street which um, kind of was not it was not considered very polite and it was associated with um, people that didn't have um, a lot of money so it's it's interesting that we now see pizza being celebrated as the cornerstone of food identity you know 2016 all of italy celebrated when there was a successful nomination to have pizza um, specifically neapolitan pizza uh, recognized by unesco as intangible culture heritage um, how quickly the story of pizza changes because 150 years ago, uh, it was it was not the sort of thing that um, people celebrated as um, positive PR or positive food identity. Um, certainly not not in anywhere outside of southern Italy. It's funny how things change. Um, so, you, as you've mentioned already, economics and poverty have dictated life in southern Italy, which is far poorer than northern Italy. Um, how have these factors influenced tr traditional foods in the South? So from my experience, I would say that food in the South, it's very local, it's very seasonal, and it's basic, but I don't mean that in a negative way. So there aren't a lot of extra spices, uh, certainly not foreign spices. We tend to forget that those are generally expensive, or they, they were until very recently. Um, People ate locally and seasonally, not because of some um, higher sense of, of morality, which I, I think often becomes part of the conversation around um, local food movements in, in a modern context. It's what they had. It's what they had access to. And um, so the foods are, um, they are whole foods. They are delicious. They are generally made from from scratch, there's nothing that's wasted. So it's interesting to see uh, reimaginings of food. So uh, ravioli actually started as a way to hide leftovers so that you could use the leftovers but still serve them for Sunday lunch to guests because we all recognize that there's some etiquette around serving leftovers to, to guests. And um, that ethic of, of taking something and, and turning it into something else that you don't waste anything um, is certainly um, part of the, the, it's internalized in um, Southern Italian cuisine. Um, my friend Rosanna is, an, she's incredible with making this beautiful food, but then being able to turn the leftovers into something else that's equally delicious so that we don't waste anything. Sounds like they have what lots of cooks, chefs, or just regular people in North America are trying to achieve now. I, I completely agree. Um, and what's interesting is people that are maybe interested in culinary tourism, traveling to southern Italy, are interested in 
maybe trying to reconnect with things that we have lost in, in North America. And yet so many of the people that I have been working with in Southern Italy are seeing the erosion of that knowledge and um, the erosion of that access to traditional foods within their communities. So many of the things that I think happened here in North America, um, you know, a couple of generations ago are things that we are currently witnessing in the South. And I think there's a bit of amnesia here in North America. We don't necessarily know what we've lost because we are a bit distanced uh, in time and space. There is this very clear recognition of the importance of food culture um, to uh, my friends and my colleagues uh, and their families in the South. And they are incredibly proud of their food as an expression of who they are and fighting with everything they've got to, to keep it as, as um, a relevant part of their diets, but also a reflection of, of who they are in, in this modern reality. So if we jumped on a plane this afternoon and went to Naples or Barry, what would you recommend that we do to experience the food culture in southern Italy? Well, both places are on the coast, so uh, we could go to a fish market in either place. Um, in Bari, this time of the day, the fishermen would be finished, and uh, it would be a great uh, time to go to the fish market and talk to the fishermen, get fresh octopus um, or um, any number of other forms of seafood. Uh, in Bari, you can uh, wander through the historic district and buy um, pasta that's being handmade by women that sit outside their doors and and make the pasta and chat to one another and gossip and and are up for a conversation with anybody that walks by in naples i think i would take us to chiro's um, pizza joint it's been open since 1948 he's a fourth generation pizzaiolo incredibly excited about um, making pizza and what it represents as a, a fourth generation um, Neapolitan. Um, Concettina de Tresante is a it's a great place and if we were in a hurry um, their pizzas are cooked in this cavernous wood-fired oven and they take about 50 seconds. Um, I didn't believe the person when he told me it took 50 seconds and I timed it and it was perfect. And if we drove out to a village, what would you do? Where would you go to eat? One of the things that I found really interesting is that there are lots of small places to eat. And um, it's, it becomes very easy to find uh, the food that everybody is, is eating. Um, I would probably stay away from the place that had a sign written in English advertising spaghetti and meatballs because there's the, the feeling of catering to tourists and you're not necessarily going to get what the locals are eating. Um, and I would suggest be open to anything because every village has something different that they are proud of, um, that they are um, offering, and we could find just about anything. Okay, one final question, and we ask this to all our guests. Uh, what book or books are you reading currently? I just finished a book by Simran Sethi called Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. 
it's an excellent book. So as the title suggests, she's looking at um, a variety of different foods. She delves into their history a little bit, but she's more interested in talking to local producers and understanding the connection between these foods and biodiversity and the challenges in a modern world where we often are looking at quantity over quality. So she's highlighting the compromises that come from that. And her central argument is to save the foods we love, we need to eat them. And do you read, say, fiction for fun at all? When I have time. Sadly, I don't have a good one on the on the top of my um, at the top of my brain at the moment. Um, I've got a, a long list that I'm looking forward to once I'm on summer holidays. Excellent, excellent. So that's all we have time for this week. Uh, a huge thank you to Nicole Kilburn for joining joining us. Nicole's book, The Future, has an ancient heart, is widely available, and offers a wonderful personal and historic insight into Southern Italy's food. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.